Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Gio and Joey Show. Today, we have a special guest. But before I give you his biography, let me just say hello. Joey, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. And yourself, Dennis? Better than Joey's doing. No, just doing doing well. well. Amen, brother. So Dennis is with Interfaith. It's an American-based mission organization that has worked in America for over 200 years. Dennis is involved in ministry in the ministry house there where he helps single men to grow in their discipleship and their walk with God. He blends Bible teaching with local church leadership, leading a weekly Bible study in his home. He has a master's degree in biblical counseling, and he has a very special podcast called Faith in Focus, where he teaches topics related to the church, theology, God, and the Bible. Dennis, thank you for coming, and Joey... Let us know what we're going to be talking about before we let Dennis inform us. <laughs> what I really loved about Dennis's presence on social media is he talks about an issue that sometimes conservatives like us can downplay or overlook the importance of or think, oh, this is just some liberal hogwash. When really, I think, right, as conservatives and as Christians and as people interested in justice, I think we should be interested in it. The issue we're going to be talking about is criminal justice reform and the plight of the wrongfully convicted. How did you initially get interested in this topic of criminal justice reform as a conservative? This is actually probably going to, there's going to be some overlap with our Daily Wire friends because it's going to be Daily Wire related in a way, in a roundabout way. So the primary way was through the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer which everyone has probably seen at this point. If you haven't, you should watch it. And I'm sure that a lot of people's eyes were opened by that documentary. And it's Daily Wire related because they are doing kind of a response docu-series coming up this summer. Candace Owens is is hosting a series kind of responding to, sounds like what they believe they got wrong in the Making a Murder case. So um, just a very, very brief synopsis. Making a Murder is a story of a man in Wisconsin, two men in Wisconsin, who were accused of murdering a photographer, and they got convicted of it. And the docu-series basically makes the case that they were wrongfully convicted. And it was such a firestorm when it came out in 2015, because anyone who watches it is like, how in the world does this happen? And it the question of their innocence is up for debate at least after the first season they've come out with a second one since then but the question of police malfeasance and planting of evidence and um manipulating evidence in order to secure a conviction against somebody who as far as the police are concerned they don't really i mean they're convinced he's guilty so what do they care if they plant evidence that is pretty much without dispute anyone who watches the docuseries comes away understanding that. It's just a really eye-opening docuseries. And from then on, I read a lot more than just stuff on the internet. I've read a lot about that case, which led me down to down a rabbit hole of The Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is talked about mm-hmm. in Making a Murderer. The podcast Wrongfully Convicted is very good. And it just kind of led me down this rabbit hole of how prevalent this is in our culture and in our criminal justice system. As you were watching that documentary, 
for full disclosure, I haven't watched it, but just hearing from what you were saying, it seemed to stir some emotions in you. Capture those emotions and what were you thinking that led you to pursue this and go down the rabbit hole of understanding and more? Because look, a lot of times we come across things, we say to ourselves, yeah, that wasn't bad, but then we forget it and go on with our lives. You seem to take to it and explore it more. So what made you go down the rabbit hole? It was probably two two things. One was it was such a well done docu I mean, it was so popular because everyone felt kind of the same thing. It was sort of an outrage at, you know, how can this happen? And so there was outrage associated, there was just bewilderment and and what kind of got as far to the extent that myself and others started to look into this more was the ease at which something like this could happen to a normal citizen. And in the series, one of the defense attorneys even says, we can all say that we would never commit a crime, but you can never say that you will never be accused of a crime. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of brings it home. All that has to happen, and as you study actual innocence and wrongful convictions more and more, all it takes is for a normal person like you guys or I to come across a police officer who has in his mind that we've done something wrong when it could be a district attorney who needs a conviction on a very prevalent case it could be anything and what they just need is a conviction and they might not care who gets convicted and if you get wrapped up in it and roped into this investigation you may find yourself at the receiving end of a pretty I won't say corrupt but a corruptible justice system and and then the other side being i wasn't seeing a lot of attention giving given to it on my political side of the aisle it seemed to only be one side of the aisle so it was those two things the outrage of how this could be happening and then how my side of the political aisle doesn't seem to care about this issue so for those who may not be aware of the case like myself, what was the murder charge? Like what was the scenario behind the murder? And why do you believe these two photographers were targeted? Were they just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time? Give us a little background to that. Just a correction. It was one photographer okay. who was murdered. and It was two men who were convicted. Okay. Of it. And so the background being... This man, Stephen Avery, was convicted of a sexual assault and an attempted murder in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And they go through that in the series that he was really blackballed by the police. He wasn't a savory guy. I mean, they don't necessarily bring that out a whole lot in the series. But, mm -hmm. you know, he had a shady past. But it, it's very abundantly clear that he was targeted by the police in the 80s and was convicted of sexual assault, despite the fact that he had 30 alibi witnesses, there was so much overwhelming evidence that he didn't commit this crime, but the cops wanted to get him because he was an unsavory character that they just didn't like for various reasons. Protesting his innocence for over 18 years, in 2003, I think it was, 18 years later, DNA exonerated him, that he, could not, he did not commit the crime, and in fact, DNA convicted the person all along that the cops knew or should have known actually did commit the crime so he gets released out of prison in 2003 sues the county and the police department for 36 million dollars and then in 2005 his family owns a junkyard and a photographer for auto trader who goes there all the time to take photos 
went to their home, but then turned up missing. And so he was one of the last people to see her. And then her bones appeared in a fire pit behind his house. His blood appeared in her car, which was found on their property. And then a few months later, his nephew, who also lived on the property, confessed to sexually assaulting her and then killing her. And so you just hear that and you think, well, that's a slam dunk case. Mm-hmm. But the, the intrigue behind it is when you peel back every single one of those parts of the story, you realize every single part of that was planted or fabricated or misconstrued. I mean, it's a very compelling story. I think anyone who watches it, which is why I think when I hear conservatives who watch it and think, well, this guy's guilty, which all the Daily Wire host again to reference them, they've all talked kind of casually about it, that he's just guilty. And it's, I don't know that you've watched this with eyes open if you think that. So that's the story in a nutshell of how he got convicted and what he got convicted of. And so it was first degree murder and mutilation of a corpse was the charges. Wow. Sounds intense. <clears throat> I may have to it, catch this on Netflix. Yeah. And the other aspect of it is the fa- is false confessions, how easily it is for a, a police officer to elicit a false confession. The nephew was convicted solely on his confession. And he was a 16-year-old mentally challenged kid who was interviewed by the police without an attorney or another adult present. So that's the other component of it is like, how could they take advantage of a kid like this? And so then he falsely confesses. Well, then that becomes the narrative. And that's what makes it on the news is they sexually assaulted this woman. They raped her, all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And that's what the public hears. But then when you watch the confession, you think this something's not on the up and up about this. So, yeah, it's a very, very compelling story. Yeah, because first of all, he's a minor. And second, if he is mentally challenged, that presents another problem itself. Yeah, just while you were talking, something that just struck out at me is the cornerstone of our system is the presumption of innocence. Mm -hmm. And like the reason we have our jury selection system is you're supposed to be given a judgment of your peers. And the way I look at it is like it doesn't actually matter is he guilty or is he not guilty? Is there a reasonable reason to believe that he's not guilty? And from what I've seen, there's a lot of people, a lot of his peers who think that that's not the case. And so I feel like as conservatives to dismiss that just because like we will have a zeal for justice, I just find like that just goes against our constitutional system. What would you say your angle on how we need to remember that it's the presumption of innocence? Like how does that get lost? Sure. I think that you're right. I think it's a desire for justice on the part of conservatives, which is right. I mean, I think that's a religious impulse. But convicting somebody who's innocent is not justice. And that's, I think, what gets lost in this. And so there is this, I want to read this quote. This was actually, this is where we get this idea of it's better that a thousand guilty men go free than one innocent man be locked up, which sounds counterintuitive, but Mm -hmm. John Adams. And again, we conservatives like to go back to the founding fathers and pride ourselves on what they believed. This was his statement in the context of defending seven British soldiers after the Boston massacre. He's a patriotic American and he's willing to defend British soldiers. He says, it's more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished. For guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that they cannot all be punished. But if innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil is immaterial, for innocence itself is no protection. And if such an idea as that were to take hold in the mind of the citizen, 
that would be the end of security whatsoever. So it's this idea that if even my own innocence doesn't protect me from being arrested, tried, and thrown in prison or executed, then why be moral? Why do the right thing? That, no, that's the, why it's so important to protect innocence, I think. Yeah, and I think we see that today in not necessarily in actual courts, even though in this example it has been in actual courts, but in social justice where everybody is presumed guilty before we even hear the facts. And you see a lot of, unfortunately, cases of overt racism in the end be hoax perpetrated mm. by the person themselves and yet people are siding with the victim in this supposed racism case and it yeah. disparages actual cases of racism let me ask you as you've been going beyond this case as you went down the rabbit hole of the innocence project what have you seen in general terms as you've dived into that, that we need as conservatives to sound an alarm, because it seems that when it comes to the Innocence Project, perhaps a lot of conservatives aren't sounding that alarm or throwing their weight behind that. Because if a person's actually innocent, then we should be foremost in championing their cause. I think that's one of the things that conservatives have to understand is, again, as we said earlier, if someone who's wrongfully convicted, that's not justice. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if we believe in, you know, and I'm not even disparaging the, um, the you know, lock them up and throw away the key, be hard on criminals type thing. Mm -hmm. But again, if you wrongfully convict an innocent person, not only is that an injustice, you haven't convicted the person who actually committed the crime. Mm -hmm. So you weren't even hard on crime. You were... <laughs> You ignored the person who actually did the crime. And so that's one of, that is also one of the things that comes out in the Making a Murderer story is you wrongfully convict someone of sexual assault. Well, you leave the actual abuser out, and he did reoffend. He did mm. assault somebody else. So that's one of the things. I, I think that conservatives, too, need to stop painting everything with such a broad brush. As much as we disparage a progressive group mentality, we will often say things like, well, they, you know, commit more crimes, that group, that demographic, and that could be factual. But the reality is we, we as conservatives have to understand those facts, but then comport ourselves with when we interact with an individual, when we see a story about a minority who might be statistically in a more high crime minority group, that individual still has the presumption of innocence. And then also, I think one of the issues is I think taking on this issue of wrongful convictions, I think conservatives have to view this as an issue that we can, that we should capitalize on and that we should maybe reach across the aisle and try to moderate on. Because as of right now, because there's the two sides that have just split down the middle, this is a side that's basically, this is a fight that's being fought by the left. So you go on the Innocence Project, and I just have to roll my eyes because <laughs> you know, they have Latinx on there. And I'm like, whatever. You just roll your eyes, but if a conservative is going to let that get in the way of something that's actually a just cause, well, we're going to have to probably do a little bit better than that. Now, having said that, the problem being when conservatives get siloed into just having these law and order, lock them up and throw away the key, type district attorneys, those ones aren't fighting for innocence. They should be, but they're being elected based on how many people can you arrest. So that's mm -hmm. their incentive. 
And then we recognize, on the other hand, that the left is electing these district attorneys who won't prosecute crimes. They're downgrading major felonies to misdemeanors, and they're not prosecuting misdemeanors. Well, they're also the ones who are freeing innocent people from prison. So you can kind of imagine a community saying, well, who are we supposed to vote for in this case? Somebody who's going to lock up all of the people in our community or people who will not lock up a bunch of people? It's this weird division. And I think conservatives have the moral mandate to actually step in and do something about this. Yes, uphold justice and be very firm, but also understand that justice includes not incarcerating people who didn't commit crimes. And I think that is such a good point you bring out because people don't like living in tension. Yet reality is that life is all attention, which is you can't go extreme right because then you become fascist. You can't go extreme left because then you're extreme liberal. And we see it in the point that you made with the DAs. Lock them up and forget about the innocents or care about the innocent, but then free murderers. Mm -hmm. And taking on that balance where we try to do both as best as we can, people don't like that tension. It takes up time, resources, and they see things as more important. But imagine if you were the innocent person, how would you like to be represented by a democratic lawyer who doesn't have your ideals and so the conservative cause needs to spearhead this and lead the way that's a good point how would you like to have if you're an innocent person how would you like to have you know somebody who's very progressive be your defense attorney well if they're going to get me out of prison i'm going to take whoever i can get and secondly (laughs) with as many wrongful convictions as that there is there are when only the progressive side is and, and this is just i'm not arguing that this is just a pragmatic thing mm-hmm. that conservatives should look at. If it's only the progressives who are fighting for the wrongfully convicted, well, guess who, when those people get exonerated and let out of prison, guess who they're going to start voting for? Because guess who was on their side? Mm-hmm. They're going to vote for progressives because they're the ones who fought for them. If we care about these communities that are being destroyed by bad criminal justice reform in a negative sense when we think mm-hmm. about it, then, then we should step in and be the good on all sides. Hey, we're going to actually protect the community, but that includes, again, not arresting innocent people because, as I've said already, that's not putting somebody behind bars that needs to be there. So crime is just going to keep happening. As you mentioned, this particular case about the documentary on Netflix, and we spoke about criminal reform in a general sense. As you explored the Innocence Project, has there been a particular case outside of this one that has caught your attention and perhaps you would want our audience members to know about? Oh, man, a really famous one. And this is, oh, man, what is his name? That white guy. (laughs) And he was like a very, man, what was his name? Ryan Ferguson. Okay, so tell us about Ryan Ferguson. So I don't know the case. I think he got accused of killing his girlfriend, if I'm not badly mistaken. But what stood out to me about that case was he wasn't a criminal. He wasn't somebody who had bad run-ins with the law enforcement. And again, that doesn't make it, just as a sidebar, I think that's another problem that conservatives have as they think because somebody, I mean, the Jordan Neely, the man who was just Mm -hmm. killed, recently now the law enforcement didn't have anything to do with his his death but i think a lot of conservatives paint that as he's had 47 prior you know arrests and releases so he was just a a terrible person 
Well, you can't you can't see a person based solely on their past behavior, especially when you're going for a conviction. I mean, you can to a certain extent. You can build a mm-hmm. character witness and stuff like that. But if somebody has sexually assaulted 50 women in the past or a tried murdering a bunch of people in the past, those things don't necessarily have any bearing on the immediate facts of did they do this crime, the one that you are deciding on. Yes. And that's in front of you. And we as conservatives, I think, try to view a person just like they're just a horrible person. So they must be guilty of whatever it is they're being accused of now, which is wrong thinking. But with the Ryan Ferguson case, he wasn't that. He was just like a upper middle class white kid that was in college. Mm-hmm. And so that you can resonate with like as somebody who's – some of these wrongful convictions, they're, they seem like unsavory characters. They're drug dealers. Mm-hmm. They're thugs. But a drug dealer is not a murderer. So mm-hmm. you, if they get accused of murder, that doesn't mean they should go to prison for murder if they're just you know dealing drugs. So I think that Ryan Ferguson's a really famous one that kind of stuck out to me because I think I related it related to it so much mm-hmm. that you know this yeah. this could be me. And I think that that's when you when you go down this rabbit hole of wrongful convictions, you find inevitably somewhere in there this could have been me. This person was me essentially. I just didn't get hit with the police. One thing that I would hope even if it's just from a pragmatic standpoint, would wake conservatives up on this issue, is the fact that right now we're actually seeing the justice system weaponized against white people, conservatives. And like maybe we should stop and ask ourselves, hey, has this been going on longer to other groups? I think of just the example of mm-hmm. how crack cocaine versus, I don't know my cocaine that well, but the, the kind of... Regular yeah, snorting the, cocaine. <laughs> That was used. There was the kind that was used mostly by like upper class white business people and stuff. Basically, the same danger from both. But no, crack cocaine, which is primarily used by in the black community, was treated much harsher than this other kind, which was primarily used in the white community. And so I was like, like, I don't have to be a liberal to recognize that disparity. And also now we can see that listen, it's happening on the other foot, right? This is an issue that affects everyone. I like something Clavin said on his show recently where he's like, if the law is not the same for everybody, then it's not the law. It's just power at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering, do you think that maybe we can diffuse some of the political polarization around this issue? I would hope so. I think this is an issue that conservatives are the ones who are dropping the ball on making it a unifying issue. Because, again, if you listen to the Wrongful Conviction podcast, a lot of these people are – they don't come right out and wear their political leanings on their, on their sleeve, but you can kind of tell. But they, will, they are happy to reach across the aisle. They understand very acutely we can't come out and badmouth a Republican governor because he's the one that we have to write to for clemency push come to shove for our clients so they understand hey we may have our opinions but we have to reach across the aisle for the sake of our client and for the sake of the wrongfully accused so we have to work with republicans or conservatives and it seems like conservatives are not willing to extend the same hand or olive branch to the other side and i think especially if we as conservatives hold ourselves up as the party of or the side of judeo-christian values and justice and what's right and what is moral this is a moral issue that you're going to have to set aside your political differences on this issue and reach across the aisle and make these and make them 
issues that you're going to run on. Run your politicians. Run, and that's why I think that Donald Trump was doing a good thing with his criminal justice reform. But he got a lot of hate from conservatives. So politicians will do; they operate on incentives like everybody else. So, so if the constituents me, take them down or don't vote for them because then they're not going to act that way. Yeah. So let me ask you because you did bring up Judeo-Christian values. We have spoken about the documentary. We've spoken about reform in general the specific case with this Ferguson individual. And we've spoken about conservatives and how they should deal with this. But your program, Faith and Focus, is a religious program. Joey and I deal with religious topics as well. How should the Christian deal with this? Because not every conservative is a Christian and not every liberal is not a Christian. And mm-hmm. so there are Christians on both sides of the aisle from a Judeo-Christian standpoint. How should we look at this and how do you want the audience to get involved if there is an avenue for us to get involved? Yeah, I think look up your local chapter of the Innocence Project. They're all over. They're in every state. You can financially support them. If financial support's not something you can do, check out. I mean, we as podcasters know a sharing is our podcast is a free form of advertisement and we appreciate it so check out podcasts like wrongful convictions and share them with your friends if we've got mostly conservative friends it's an eye-opening thing for them as christians again we are called upon to let justice roll down in rain so i mean this is a justice issue if we hold that as one of our cardinal virtues then this should be something we're fighting for the new testament talks about visiting the criminals and prisoners and not forgetting about the prisoners. So I think Jesus talking about the, when you gave a cup of water or you visited in prison, you did that to me. I think, and it doesn't have to be innocent, wrongfully convicted people. You can do this with anybody. I mean, it's really simple now. A lot of it you can do online. You still have to buy stamps, which doesn't make any sense, but you can send emails <laughs> to, to prisoners. But there is a way you can go on Innocence Project and write to wrongfully convicted people and just let them know you're praying for them and, and just encourage them. Sometimes you know, that one of the big things about people who are wrongfully convicted that their attorneys stress is every day that they spend in prison is dangerous. They can be killed. Something can happen to them. They could kill themselves. They can get sick. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's not good conditions. The despair in the, it's not that when somebody's wrongfully convicted and the conviction gets overturned, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a years long process. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just your letters, your reaching out to them may be the sustain, sustaining hope that kind of gets them through. So, and those are some concrete things I think that Christians can do. Have you heard that? You know, look up the website, Innocence Project. Get involved if you feel a burden to that. And even if you're not feeling inclined to do that, support somebody like Dennis who is inclined to do that and to advocate for the innocence. Because imagine, to me, from a biblical standpoint, the most famous innocent person wrongly convicted, John the Baptist, outside of Jesus, right? (laughs) Right. Led to a wrongful conviction, and he needed that encouragement. So much so that he sent his own disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or do we seek for another? And so the mental anguish that can cause somebody is, well, put yourself in their shoes and the support and encouragement you would need. Dennis, I want to pivot here a little bit. Tell us about your ministry more. We introduced it in your bio, but give us a few words on that before we wrap up. Yeah. So I, like you said, I work with InFaith and they are a 
an organization that's been around for over 200 years. People, we joke in the mission that it's the America's best kept secret <laughs> because it's been around for over 200 years, started in Pennsylvania, the right at the founding of America. And a lot of American Christianity has been influenced and intertwined with in faith. Of course, it was American Sunday School Union at the time and then American Missionary Fellowship. So a lot of it was planting Sunday schools. And it, mm -hmm. I had just listened to a podcast with our CEO and I want to say he said something like tens of thousands of churches across America in this past 200 years have been planted by in-faith missionaries who started maybe as just a Sunday school to teach literacy and Bible to people. But it has expanded to missionaries do camps and inner city work, it's anything that your heart can imagine. And as long as you've got a pulse and a love for Jesus <laughs> and a call to ministry, usually in-faith has an open door for you. But so my ministry in particular is um, primarily Bible teaching and discipleship. That's my heart and training people to make disciples themselves. So I do that through my local church. I do that on my podcast. I do it in my in my house church that I lead. I live in a house of single guys who want to live in community and grow together. I have my master's degree in biblical counseling. I offer my services that are just donation-based. A lot of Christians need mental health, just someone to talk to a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And sometimes pastors can't offer that. Sometimes they don't feel comfortable going to their pastors because you see them every Sunday. You don't necessarily want to air your problems with your pastor, although you should feel comfortable to be able to do that. But I can understand why a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people also, it's cost prohibitive. So because I am supported by people around the country, I don't have to charge necessarily the client to receive counseling services. Mm -hmm. Somebody else can basically foot that bill for you. So I offer that and then I do my podcast, Faith and Focus. How often do you release episodes in Faith and Focus for our audience? At least once a week. My goal has been since the beginning of the year to do three a week. When are we going to get on Twitter and do a live program? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's jumping over to Twitter. I'm still not at the point where I feel confident live streaming. When I teach the Bible, I never use notes. I mean, very mm -hmm. rarely do I ever yeah. use notes when I do podcasts. Mm -hmm. I'm just stream of consciousness thinking out loud what I'm so I don't know that it's appropriate for me to do live streaming and stuff <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll confuse Satan with Jesus or something. The pressure of doing it live. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was really interested by what you're saying, and I really appreciate what you do in that you're willing to take this issue that might get you some heat from conservatives, but it's like, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, our allegiance isn't to a tribal we're not Republicans first. We're Christians first. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, if something is just, it doesn't matter if Republicans support it or not. We still ought to support it. And so right. I just really appreciate your courage on that issue. And I hope more conservatives can jump on this train. Um, I agree. I would just say one thing, too, is like, I was just thinking this in the context of like the political polarization we see online. And like, it's so easy to just like own the libs or own the cons, right? But it's like, as Christians specifically, like we've got to see Jesus in other people. In other words, mm -hmm. when we see other people, we should see people that Jesus died to save, right? Whether they're, you know, Stephen Avery or whether it's some poor young black kid that just didn't get a right start and now he's being railroaded by the cops or whatever it is. Or, or AOC. Or, or AOC, AOC yeah. or Kyle Rittenhouse or Obama, <laughs> Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can so we easily dehumanize people or think that we don't have to listen to what they have to say but it's like no our savior died for them too and so mm -hmm. i just i appreciate this effort to reach across the aisle yeah and i think that i think it's necessary i think that 
I, I would our political and cultural climate would do a lot better if people were much more issues based. That they would be willing to partner with people based on their issues and just roll their eyes at maybe some of the other silly stuff that they might say and believe. Mm-hmm. But but on the things that are important, like you know, actual innocence, fighting for those things, I think is a good thing. I agree. The truth shall set you free. Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. So, Dennis, thank you for being on the Gio and Joey show. Hopefully, it's not the last time. I know when I was on your podcast, we talked about perhaps doing something on the New and Old Covenant or on the Book of yeah. Hebrews. So, I wouldn't mind doing that. I like the dynamic of the three of us. So, perhaps yeah. we can have more of this in the future. Leave us with some closing words on both Faith and Focus and your Passion of the Innocence Project before we sign off. Faith and Focus is really just, it's my heart. So whatever, every episode, there's not a political angle to it. I try to keep politics out of it as much as possible. Anytime I might have to bring up politics, I try to be as generous as possible to the other side. I try to make it accessible to everybody because it's primarily scripture in the Bible and the church and things with the church. So my opinions do come through. I share my opinions and my interpretations. But it's basically whatever is on my heart at the time. It's not necessarily the new political thing. I'm not trying to put Christian spins on political topics. So it's just a wide array of things. Sometimes it's just me teaching through the Bible. Right now I'm doing a series on Romans. So there's that intermixed with other stuff, any topic that might jump out to me. That's faith and focus. And then, yeah, the innocence issue, I think, is one of the premier issues that, that Christians should be involved in. Because, again, as you said, there's so many stories in Scripture of people who've been wrongfully convicted. Joseph. I mean, when you read the story mm-hmm. of Joseph, it's like, you know, you just think, how in the world does that happen? Well, guess what? It, it doesn't just happen in Egypt. It happens in America, too. And then, of course, the ultimate example being Jesus, somebody Amen. who was Amen. wrongfully convicted. It's a classic. You could write the story of the wrongfully convicted with their, when an innocent person goes, is convicted, the guilty man is out to Rome. So Barabbas says, gets let free. Yes. So that's exactly what happens today. If a Stephen Avery gets arrested and he's actually innocent, then whoever killed this photographer is out to kill again if they want to. So, mm-hmm. Yep. The world is still yelling, give us Barabbas. Joey, I'll give you the final word as the host of this episode and sign us off. Yeah, again, I just want to say thank you for coming on, Dennis. And to our audience, I would just urge you to have an open mind, pursue truth, I love mercy, and fight for justice. Okay, thank you, everybody. And until next time, this is the Gio and Joey show. Thank you, Dennis, very much. And we'll see you next time. Be well.